Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. Take your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter number 5. Don't get too comfortable. We're going to actually stand here in just a moment. Um, and uh, I am actually going to attempt to go through a longer passage of Scripture today with the Lord's help. Uh, we have been, if you've been visiting with us, we're going verse by verse through the book of Matthew. And we've been in here for many, many months. Uh, we started all the way back in the beginning of this year. And we haven't made it very far. We're only in Matthew chapter 5. But we're going to attempt to do several verses today. And, I, and we'll stand here in just a moment to do that. Let me begin by saying preachers and pastors take a lot of heat. Um, it's, I think people say it to be funny, but they, and maybe it's funny, but they say, Pastor, why are you so stressed out? You only work one day a week. <sighs> it makes me feel so good when someone says that. Um, if you were to be here during the course of the week, you would see that that uh, we might work more than one day a week. Um, or we'll hear someone uh, at the end of the service, we'll hear someone say like this, uh, they're shaking Pastor Howard's hand or my hand, we've just preached on a Sunday morning or Sunday night, and we'll have someone say, I wish the people that needed to hear that sermon had been here today. Um, we hear... The stories like the one where a particular, uh, uh, it was a cold Sunday morning and, and an old rancher, just, just one rancher showed up for service on a Sunday morning. The pastor, he got up, he preached to the audience of one and he, and he just, everything he had prepared, he preached. And that rancher said after, he said, now pastor, when only one cow shows up on my farm to feed, I don't give him the whole truckload. We hear comments about being long-winded, boring, monotone, repetitious. And the sad truth is much of what we hear is true, and there's a reason for that. And we're going to look at that this morning from Matthew chapter 5. Let's stand together, and we're going to read through verses 17 through verse 26 and I'll read the odd verses, you read the even verses, please. And let's all participate. If you do not have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Let's read this passage of Scripture and see if any of this will make sense to us. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall no 
Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that the brother hath ought against thee, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Father, would you just add the blessing that only you can add from the reading of your scripture. And Father, may we do justice to that which is before us, May we leave here and encourage people, and may we leave here understanding more about your word. We love you, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I encourage you to take notes this morning and be able to learn from this message and maybe be able to discuss it with those that aren't here that you wish were here. Far too often, preaching is simply a pastor reading a biblical text and then shouting for a while about his own personal opinions, his likes and his dislikes, and general view of the world. And thrown in will be the, the usual admonishments to be good people, love each other, give money, win the lost. And, hey, listen, let's say a prayer, go home. This type of preaching, though, has no power because the preacher has only talked about the Word of God. He has not preached it. In an article entitled, The Value of Expository Preaching and Teaching, Roger Johnson, he laments, he says, quote, The authority behind preaching resides not in the preacher, but in the biblical text. May I say that again? The authority behind preaching resides not in the preacher, but in the biblical text. So I say to you this morning as we begin this message that preaching only has power when the preacher allows the Word of God to come to life. And what we read and what we often do when we do responsive reading is we're reading the Word of life. And uh, sometimes we throw that precious Bible that's in your lap in the back seat of our car, in the back window of our car, all to be forgotten until next Sunday morning. I just want to say the Holy Spirit anoints the type of preaching and message and drives it into the people's hearts um, when the Holy Spirit is allowed to help the Bible come to life. Never get tired of preaching in the Sunday morning and Sunday evening, Wednesday night service. Never get tired of that. True biblical preaching is the scripture being expressed, though, through the personality of the preacher. See, can you illustrate that, Pastor Armstrong? Absolutely. How many of you have ever read four familiar books called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? All right, who are the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They are? Are there any stories that are told, the same story told in all four books? Are they all written word for word? They're written through the personality of the writer. 
I asked a policeman once uh, uh, who, who is a member of our church, and I asked him, I said, so how in the world do you wade through all the witness statements at an accident? And he said, they're all very important. Because everyone has a different vantage point of an accident. They all saw the accident and they all add relevant details. The same is of the Word of God. I'm so thankful that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How awesome it is to read it and to read the various descriptions of the different miracles and the and living life with Jesus Christ. Well, the same thing is true of preaching. We'll read a, a passage of Scripture, and then the preacher, under the whole, control of the Holy Spirit, will then help us understand that passage of Scripture through the personality. John Stott said this, The preacher must become the bridge between the Word of God and the people of God. And so I am merely a bridge to help us better understand the Word of God. Do you know that the Bible, it is full of fiery preachers. Can you imagine Peter preaching the word of God? But there's also Jeremiah, who was a preacher that would weep through his messages as he talked about the sins of Israel. Jonah, he was a reluctant evangelist uh, who, who made the first amphibious landing. John the Baptist. Uh, he was a preacher in rough clothing and ate locust and honey. Uh, do you remember Peter, though? I, I said fiery preachers. Uh, he was at Pentecost, and we know what happened at Pentecost when a whole crowd of people came to repentance. And, and Paul, he expounded the wisdom of God to the pseudo-intellectuals on Mars Hill in Athens. However, the preaching of none of these men can compare to the preaching of one person, and his name is... Jesus Christ. And he was the Son of God, is the Son of God. And so I don't want you to forget that Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, it's a sermon. And it comes from the very words of Jesus Christ. We may read its words blandly, but Jesus preached this message under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. It was a, a Holy Spirit anointed sermon. And the Sermon on the Mount began with what we called the Beatitudes. And we spent many, many weeks in verses 3 through 12 as we went one by one through the eight Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes described the characteristics of a believer's life. Next, Jesus spoke about salt and light. And we examined that message uh, uh, last week. And uh, this uh, passage of Scripture that we uh, just now read, is, uh, through the end of this book, Jesus teaches us about the Scriptures and the value of the Scriptures and that the Bible is a guidebook in the believer's life. So I find that there's three undeniable principles from the passage of Scripture that we've read this morning. Let's examine principle number one about the Bible. Scripture is about internals, not externals. Scripture is about internals, not externals. I say this morning that the authority of Scripture is of vital importance. May I illustrate it this way? I, I taught another starting point class this morning. And to those who were in our starting point class, I said this. In Genesis chapter number 1, in verse number 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God, and then what's the next word? Created. My friend, if those words are not true, if that is not authoritative, if that is not accurate, 
I beg you, close your Bible, get up and walk out. What I mean then, if we cannot trust the Scripture, if we cannot trust the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And what did He do? He created. Um, The authority of Scripture is of vital importance. It comes from God. And when we speak of the authority of Scripture, we mean this, that the Bible is the all-powerful, invincible, indisputable Word of our holy God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. And the words of Jesus are of special importance because He was God. And He spoke the very words of God. I want to remind you that Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says this, For the word of God, it is quick and it is powerful. In our day, many uh, who claim to be Christians, they they, they cast doubt on the authority of Scripture. I've heard self-proclaimed preachers say this, The Bible contains the word of God. May 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 I ask you this? Does the Bible contain the Word of God? Yes or no? But that phrase undermines the entirety of the Bible. The Bible doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And may we never doubt that Bible that is in your lap. It is living today. It is the only living book in all of the world. And you could come into my library and see some 2,000 books in my library, but there's only one that's alive. And it's the Word of God. Jesus, he had a relationship to the Scripture. Oh, it's authoritative, but Jesus had a relationship to the Scripture. Was Jesus some left-wing liberal healer that had, had come to confront their liberal lifestyle? Absolutely not. No doubt, after hearing the Beatitudes and Jesus' teaching on salt and his teaching on light, some of the hearers began to wonder where Jesus stood on the authority of Scripture. And this is why Jesus said this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. In other words, the Jewish people lived under the law. And when Jesus came, he came to fulfill the law. The phrase, the law and the prophets, is used throughout the New Testament to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, do not forget the writings of the Old Testament. We live in this day which people want to pick apart the Bible and believe this part and reject this part. And Jesus said that he had not come to destroy any part of that. He said neither the, he didn't come to destroy neither the law nor the prophets. He had come not to destroy, but he says this, I've come to fulfill the law. Now, I can just imagine. Remember when I said preachers could be boring and monotone? I imagine some of you say, wow, this is going to be one of those messages. What is so important about this? May I just tell you that there's people in our lifetime right now in Tucson who want to undermine the authority of the Word of God. And they want to take Romans chapter 1 out of the Bible. And if you don't know what Romans chapter 1 is all about, you need to read it. But it's talking about the perverted, wicked lifestyle that is all around us today. And there are people that want to take out of the Word of God uh, where, where Jesus said that He is the only way to go to heaven. And people want to say there are many ways to go to heaven because that makes us feel good about ourselves. My friend, the Bible does not care about your feelings. And that should be a comfort to you. 
Because the Bible, in a world where there are no absolute truths, the Bible is absolute truth. And you can take that to the bank. You can cash that check. The Bible is absolute truth. So Jesus said he had not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I want you to notice how the Beatitudes are in the third person. Blessed are they. Jesus then shifted to the second person, and he said, You are salt. You are life. And in verse number 17, Jesus shifts for a third time to the first person. And he said this, I am not come to destroy. I am come to fulfill. And Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in two ways. He was the fulfillment in Old Testament promises. We must remember that Jesus, it was prophesied that Jesus would come to this earth. He was the Messiah, the Old Testament foretold in so many different ways. Secondly, he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament because he perfectly lived out its moral and ethical commands. Only one person who has ever walked this earth can say that they lived a perfect, moral, sinless life. Life and his name was Jesus. Jesus had not sinned, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Isaiah 42 says, A bruised reed shall uh, he not break, and the smoking flax shall not he, he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Now, this is where perhaps it gets technical and boring to different people in our congregation. But may I just tell you that you read a very significant verse. Jesus promised that all of the law would be fulfilled. And then he gives this strange explanation. He says in the verse that you read, the word jot represents the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks somewhat like an apostrophe. I believe we have a, 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 a slide here where we, we can show that. And then uh, the word tittle is an even smaller mark. It's a small stroke that separates two letters. Jesus is saying here in this verse to illustrate to all of us the importance of that book that sits in your lap is that he believed so in the authority of Scripture that not even the dot of an I or the crossing of a T would pass away. J.B. Phillips, he translates this verse. I assure you that while heaven and earth last, the law will not lose a single dot or comma until its purpose is complete. Is God in control? He is. And there's coming a day when heaven and earth will pass away. And I want you to notice that Jesus said, till, till that passes away. And as long as we live in this sinful world, Scripture will remain as a testimony to the righteousness of God. However, there will be no need for the Word of God someday. Whoa, that sounds heretical. There will be no need for the word of God someday because we will be with him and he, we will hear the words directly from his mouth. Second Peter 3 and verse number 13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Let me say this uh, as we're looking at this first principle. The believers must have a relationship to Scripture. May I say to you, the believer must have a relationship to this scripture. How many of you have a relationship with another person? How many of you are dead and not listening? 
Every single person under the sound of my voice this morning, you have a relationship with someone. You have a relationship with a spouse. You have a relationship with children. You have a relationship with a boyfriend, a girlfriend. You have a relationship with children or grandchildren. You have a relationship right here in this church with brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have a relationship. May I just tell you that you must have a relationship with that book that sits in your lap. Because if it is alive... You should be reading that book. Notice two key words in verse number 19. As we're breaking down scripture, there's two words, break and teach. A person who teaches God's word must not be a person who breaks God's commandments. In doing so, he will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. He will be in the kingdom, but he will have no rewards. Now, going on to what we just read, on the contrary, the person who does God's will and teaches God's word will be called great in God's kingdom. He'll be rewarded greatly. And Jesus wants us to live what we believe, to walk our talk. Now, that's hard to do. In verse number 20, look right there in your Bibles. Jesus says that our righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Why was Jesus teaching us this principle? Let me go back 2,000 years to give you a very brief history lesson. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. Everyone bowed down to them. They were in awe of the scribes and Pharisees. They, they wore religious-looking clothing. They acted in a pious way. They spoke in religious tones. Have you ever noticed how someone's tone of voice changes when they pray? I've often wondered about that. If I'm talking to Shelly, Oh, Shelly! Some people's entire demeanor changes when they talk to God. He's our friend. We should talk to him like our friend. Um, but the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, they spoke in religious tones. In other words, their tone of voice changed. And the common people were in awe of them. And externally, on the outside, they had it all together. But internally, Jesus knew what they were like. And he said, you're very sinful. You're not just sinful, you're very sinful. When I was a kid, I used to... Um, uh, go to uh, Mannington, West Virginia. That's about 40 minutes away from where I grew up. But they had something called the Mannington Fair. It was a highlight for us, my two younger sisters and I. For when we went to Mannington Fair, it was one of the funner things that we did growing up is going to the fair for once or twice during uh, when fair was happening. But it was always interesting is that there were people at the Mannington Fair, what they would do to get a ribbon. Sort of like the Pima County Fair. But these people, they fussed over their pigs for months. I mean, they took care of their pigs in unusual ways. So that when they brought that pig to the Mannington Fair, it would be perfect in its shape, size, weight, skin colors, the little hairs on top of its ears. They were bathed and curried and combed and polished for the fair. But you know what's interesting? Every single pig, 100%, when they returned to the farm, they went right back into the mud and the slop. A pig is a pig, no matter how you clean them up. 
And in the same sense, a sinner is a sinner no matter how religious he may look. A sinner is still a sinner no matter how religious he or she may look. And Jesus is preaching that unless our faith is first internal, real, genuine in the heart, it makes no difference how we look on the outside because we shall, in the Bible says, shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Folks, on point number one, as we examine this principle, I just say God knows what our internal looks like, and you know what your internal looks like, and you may fool someone on the outside, but you're not fooling God. That brings me to principle number two. In principle number two, murder is most often committed with words, not weapons. Murder is, often, is most often committed with words and not weapons. Let's go back to verse 21 and verse 22. Jesus has spoken in general terms here about the word of God in our first principle. And for the rest of the chapter, he starts to be very specific. This is where we get uncomfortable. I want you to notice what he says. He begins with the concept of murder. In verse 27, he speaks of adultery. In verse 31, he teaches on divorce. In verse 33, he teaches on oaths. In verse 38, he teaches on retaliation. In verse number 43, he teaches on love. And in each place, Jesus says these words, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. And Jesus, he goes beyond the external commandment to the internal heart of the matter. Jesus was cutting these disciples right in half with his words. His words in verse 22 build like a crescendo upon each other and he lays out three building indictments. And, 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 and indictment number one, uh, he says here, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Wow. Have we ever gotten angry without a cause? This is an anger that goes beyond proper bounds. I, I, I have counseled many times, over 150 times for weddings, and I always take every single one of these sessions to Ephesians 4 and verse number 26. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. To be angry without a cause is unjustifiable anger, which comes from a bitter spirit, and this person should be brought to judgment or the example to the civil courts. The second building block here is he says whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council now I, I want I want to ask you a question everyone look up here for just a moment you read this verse out loud and you were like Raka Raka what is it you had to read this verse I want to ask you how many of you absolutely know what that means you read it and you know what it means three four that's why we come to church I'm going to help you here. The word raka, it was an Aramaic. Remember that our Bible was written in Greek and Aramaic. It was an Aramaic term, and it means this, empty head. It means empty head. We use similar terms like blockhead and airhead and numbskull. When you get angry enough with a person to think or say, you are a mentally incompetent idiot. You've gone too far, is what Jesus is saying here. The third building block is this, and this really cuts to the quick. Whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Fool comes from moros, which we get our word moron. 
And in these days, it was used to describe someone who was morally bankrupt. To say that another person is a complete failure morally and utterly useless to God or men uh, to make the, uh, ourselves judges and, and we are not. Uh, there is a danger here when we call someone a fool. Now, can I just be transparent with you? And I trust that you will agree and be honest enough to agree with this statement. Anger can be difficult to control. It honestly is. Anger can be difficult because it's like a, 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 a pot of boiling water. And once it starts to boil, you just can't stop it. And that is bad enough. But when we get to a stage three in our anger, it's like verbally putting a gun to someone's head or stabbing in them the heart. Folks, if you get nothing from the message, get this. Our angry words can kill another person's spirit. Our angry words can kill another person's spirit. Sometimes we may be tempted to think, He had it coming, Pastor Armstrong. Don't you know she deserved what I said? Hang on. Hang on a second. If we really want to live a Christ-like life, we should not strike out in anger. Clarence Darrow, he was a famous criminal lawyer once said this, everyone is a potential murderer. I have not killed anyone, but I frequently get satisfaction out of obituary notices. I remind you of 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 15. Whosoever hateth his, would you look at that verse here? Whosoever hateth his what? Okay, what, what, now what does that mean? I, I, sometimes we just read through Scripture. Like we, you all read rock and sounded like you knew exactly what you were talking about in church. Who's brother talking about right there? Your biological brother? The unsaved co-worker? Who is that word brother specifically talking about? Your brothers and sisters in Christ. The people that are in this church this morning. I want you to look at that verse behind me. It says, whosoever... Hateth his brother is a what? And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Wow. This is convicting. There are people here this morning that you have hate in your heart toward a brother or sister. And the Bible, remember, this isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John giving their perspective. This is the very words of Jesus Christ, the God of heaven. He says this, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. The Bible doesn't say, Jesus didn't say, whosoever hateth his brother is acting like a murderer. It doesn't say that. He says that our words kill other people. Principle number three, disputes should focus on reconciliation, not revenge. We are going to have disagreements. Disputes should focus on reconciliation, not revenge. Jesus, he preaches here about settling disputes, and he gives us two examples. And The first is a religious setting, he, he, which we call the altar. Uh, the second is a legal standing, which is called the adversary. So he gives us an example. We must focus on reconciliation in church. 
Jesus said that if you bring your gift, in other words, you bring your tithes and your offerings to the altar, or that's to church, and while you're there, you, hey, I remember that brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, I, I have something against that person. You're to leave your offering there. Well, some of you need to bring your offering in the first place so that it can actually be left here. I would encourage you to do that. This is the week of Thanksgiving, and some haven't been very thankful this year in your giving. Bring your, your gift. Leave it there at the altar, he says, and then first go be reconciled to your brother before you come and offer that gift. Picture this scene. You come to church just as, as, as the choir is singing their first song. Uh, you remember that there's an offense that was committed this past week, and you cannot even concentrate on prayer. You cannot even sing because your mind is distracted. The Spirit is, is, is banging on your heart because of your sin, and literally, literally, you you should get back up. You should walk out those doors. You should go get in your car. Or you, if that person is here, you should grab them by the neck and say, we got to talk. And you should take care of that before you worship. And that person might be a friend, and it might be a business associate, an employee, a fellow church member, a spouse, a child, a grandchild. I don't care who it is. We are to make things right with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can effectively worship in church. You see, when you reconcile, Swindoll said this, your goal is to turn enmity into amity. It must be immediate. And if you do not reconcile, you are disobeying God, and here's what's happening. You're adding baggage to your life. You know what it is? How many of you have ever watched that show called Hoarding? You ever seen that show? It's a TV show. I think it's on TLC or something like that. You can ask Shelly. She knows about it. Um, um, there's a show on TV about hoarding. And they go in and they film these people that are hoarders. They don't throw away trice. They, they throw away nothing. And so they may have just a little aisle through their entire house. Or they may actually have to step over things. Now, we have that mental image. Do you know that we do the same thing? We hoard our hurts. We hoard our faults. We hoard our words. We hoard our anger, and actually we keep assembling all of these boxes and baggage of garbage into our life, and it makes it nearly impossible to navigate life because we are hoarding these hurtful, harmful things in our relationships. If you do not reconcile, you are disobeying the God of heaven. I encourage you to make things right. That offense will only fester. It will cause bitterness. And it will only make things smelly and foul and ugly. And it will be almost unlivable if you don't take care of it. You cannot be right with God without being right with others. It's not possible. So we must focus on reconciliation also in the world, first and foremost with our brothers and sisters, but we also need to focus on reconciliation with the world. Jesus, he advises us to agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way. In other words, we're to always try to settle out of court. We might be tempted to think that just because we're dealing with unbelievers that it's all right not to reconcile. Not so. The people of God are to be the example, and we are to live for God in front of all all people saved or lost and we live in a time of constant lawsuits and people are simply itching to sue each other may that not be our first option may it be a last desperate option and do i just wonder if if you have an attorney's name first and foremost in your phone you know who our attorney is 
I'm not being trite. Our attorney is Jesus Christ. He sits as our high priest, ever making intercession on our behalf. You cannot have a better attorney than Jesus Christ. You say, well, I want my way. Jesus said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so maybe we ought to take our cares and our concerns to the one who can actually do something about it. You see, as I conclude this message, the principles of the Bible are not external first, but they're internal first. There's some here this morning, you might have surface religion. And like that of the Pharisees, surface religion has no lasting value. In fact, it can send you to hell. Surface religion will send you to hell because it's external, it's not internal. Angry words can kill another person's spirit. Get hold of that temper of yours. Watch the sarcasm. Determined to allow God to help you conquer that bad habit of speaking out of control. And so I say this, when you're offended, how many of you have ever been offended? That's all of us. When you're offended, seek reconciliation and not revenge. Get over it. Do not be petty. Do not allow bitterness to seep into your soul like a nagging cold that will, seems to never go away. Take a big dose of the medicinal qualities of the Word of God that sits in your lap. The Bible gives to man the guidance he needs because it's God's unchanging Word. And it's good for every age. And it's good for every generation. Let me illustrate this with some music. I once read about a musician who went to see his, his older music teacher. And during the visit, the elderly mentor uh, struck a tuning fort and said, Hey, I just want you to know this is an A. And uh, just then from the, from the floor above came the voice of the singer. Uh, 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 she sings sharp, said the teacher. And he paused for a moment, and he lifted the tuning fork. And again, the second time he struck it, he said, but this is an A. It always has been, always will be. 440 vibrations per second. It will be the same 5,000 years from now. So I've asked Tabitha to help me here this morning. And she's going to play the A on the piano. Now, I don't know if that's a B, C, or D. I do not understand music. But according to musicians, um, I, uh, Kenny, you understand music. Can you tell what letter that, uh, what, what music note that is? Yeah. What is that? That's an A. Let's hear that again. Maybe we could all sing an A today, whatever that means. Mrs. Howard, you have taught music for more than a few years. Can you tell what note that is? It is an A is always a what? You cannot, you can call it a B, you can call it a C, you can call it whatever you want to say it, but when she plays that note, it is always an A. Always an A. Do you know what? The Word of God is always an A. You can try to change it. You can try, you can try to say, well, this is what it means, and this is how my feelings say it is. But an A is always an A. And that's why I've entitled this morning's message, It is an A. The Word of God is an A. It is unchangeable. And, 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 you, and uh, Mrs. Howard, you can say it's a B, right? You could say that. That's a B. But Tabitha, what is that? But Mrs. Howard has taught, matter of fact, Mrs. Howard's a little bit older than you. 
And Mrs. Howard just said that's a B. So are you contradicting Mrs. Howard? <laughs> and the reason you're contradicting her because you know that that note that you just played is a what? A. Hmm. An A is always an A. Now, can you play another note and tell us what it is? What is that? That's a G. Is a G always a G? Okay, the Word of God is always the Word of God. I want you to have confidence this morning that that book that sits in your lap, it's an A. It can be trusted. It does not change. And Jesus was teaching us that some of us, we've got some issues. And we need to confess those issues. And maybe we are offended about something. We need to take care of that offense. We need to make it right. We need to make it whole again. And I want to encourage you to do that.